Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. The year is 1964, but it feels a lot like 2020. The film... Dr. Strangelove. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I am Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list, the 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch today? Today we're talking about Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. But before that, we are doing our live show in Los Angeles at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, you can get tickets on the Alamo Draft House site or through the app. January 20th, come down and see us. These shows have been so much fun. And uh, we always have a theme cocktail. Oh, yeah. Our theme cocktails are really good. Amy, we've just gotten off um, a bunch of weeks of specials, and we dropped Star Wars in there as well. And we are in the middle of, I would say, movie season. Like Because this is... Award season has begun. We're recording this the day after the Golden Globes. And uh, I feel like a lot of people on their break probably want to see a lot of movies, talking about a lot of movies. Last night, I watched Golden Globes, and I have to say, I was I was pretty happy. So was I, actually. I was hooting a bit. You know, my Taron Edgerton one for um, for Rocket. Yes. Man. I was so happy. I rewatched that movie over the break. He's just great. Even the way he dances brings character and personality to it. It's not just perfect. It's not like, oh, look at me. I'm doing the most perfect. He's like floppy and sweaty and angry in all the right ways. I think it's a hell of a performance. And I'm glad to see it recognized. And I'm just mad that I spent so much energy being mad at Rami Malek thinking that he ruined my Terrence chances. <laughs> I, I really love to see Bernie Taupin up there with Elton John. I didn't realize they never won an award together, uh, which they talked about on stage. I have to say that I thought Kate McKinnon's speech was phenomenal, followed by, hands down, I think one of the funniest speeches that I've seen in an award show when they give like a big award. This year was the Carol Burnett Award. Last year was the inaugural award with Carol Burnett. And this year, Ellen DeGeneres won. That speech was so funny. I don't know if it just hit me in a way that I was ready for, but I was laughing so hard at that speech. 
I know. And I really enjoyed Tom Hanks' speech, even yeah. though I was still very cranky that they did not include Joe versus the volcano in that montage. I saw that. That should have been there. I mean, especially when you're going to put on David Pumpkins. If David Pumpkins gets in there, you can put at least uh, a, a visual <laughs> moment from Joe V. Volcano. Uh, Do you know if Rita Wilson ever got her makeup done? I was no, following I, that drama very closely on Twitter. I heard that no one showed up to do Rita's hair and makeup, which is, a, I mean, you know what? We all got problems. We all have these issues. This is a big deal. Um, Her other problem is called Chet Hayes. Hey, hey, hey. Um, You know what I was surprised at? I would say there was one big upset for me. Um, Besides the Rami upset, because I feel like that's, they always are a little bit more interesting in their TV picks. So I I actually like that they bring attention to some shows, even as Rami said on stage, that no one has seen. Um, But Missing Link I haven't seen, I was a little bit surprised. It seemed like the the uh, the writer and director was also surprised. I think whenever I see an animated uh, category, I just assume Pixar is just going to walk away with it. And Toy Story 4 being like the swan song for that franchise. I thought that was the easy win. What uh, what did you think? First, I just, I, I, I'm just laughing at the idea that you think Toy Story 4 might be the swan song of that franchise. Uh, we right. shall see. We <laughs> shall see. I love, I love, I love your optimism. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was an argument against making sequels. I respected that, that there was like a bunch of sequels to things and then Missing Link, a film that nobody had seen, but at least was the first of its kind. Right. One, it made me feel like I should have seen Missing Link. Missing Link tried very hard to make me see Missing Link. I have so many Missing Link screeners at my house. I have a book about the making of Missing Link. I still never saw Missing Link because I saw an animated film that I was like, well, you're my you're my winner of the year. Nothing will beat you. Well, I'm going to go home and watch it with my kids. That's what I've decided today. But gonna- have you seen I Lost My Body? No, what's that? <gasps> it's so beautiful. It's on Netflix right okay. now. It's um from France, but it's about a severed hand crawling around through Paris. Oh, it's wow. It's so beautiful and sad. The music is great. Lafka, my critics group, uh, one of my two critics groups, we gave it best um best score as well. It's just the most beautiful film I've ever seen Ooh, this all year. Right. Oh, so, well, now I, I don't think I lost my body. True winner was not even nominated. All right. I love that. And by the way, just to put some context on Missing Link, it's only the fourth time in history that the top prize does not go to a Disney film. Good. Good, good, good. <laughs> you and I should watch Missing Link. If you don't have a screener, I have a dozen. I'll uh, by the way, I don't have a screener. I should. I have a screener for pretty much everything else but Missing Link. But when I was up at Skywalker Ranch, they were doing a special screening of it with the animators and film directors. I was leaving that day, but they had all the claymation uh, statues out there. It was really fun to kind of take a look at all of them. Can I confess something that I yeah. should feel a little bit guilty about and mm-hmm. maybe I shouldn't even say out loud? There was a minute at my Golden Globes watch party where I started rooting for the Joker to win. Really? Yeah, because I think award shows are such nonsense that part of me is like, the more they reveal themselves to be nonsense by awarding the wrong films, the happier I get. I just find it hysterical because I've given up ever on them really awarding the right film, except for Moonlight. They got that one right. Other than that, they're always wrong. So the wronger they get, the more I enjoy it. Well, yeah, (laughs) but you know what I liked about last night? And I, I feel like the Golden Globes are always an interesting barometer because it doesn't seem to affect any other award show. It just sort of is an outlier. A lot of the times the categories are a little bit different. I just think I really enjoyed that the awards really spread it around. I feel like they really captured a lot of the bigger films. Surprise though, that the Irishman didn't get basically anything. I mean, it just was hanging out there to dry. 
Yeah, at one point I was hoping the Irishman would win something just because I wanted to see De Niro get up there and give an angry anti-Trump speech. Mm. That would be my only really reason. But, you know, De Niro didn't seem to be laughing too much at the political stuff when they would cut to him. Maybe he, I don't know, he just had a very stern look on his face. But don't you also think that that grouping, that table, that Irishman table, are not the people going around kissing the ass of the Hollywood farm press. Like, they're not doing any no. sort of those parties. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, again, the thing I always find the most fascinating about the Hollywood foreign press is, you know, I've been a film critic in Los Angeles where they live for so long, and I've never met any of them. They're like this underground network of people <laughs> who just do anything for free cheese and wine. I love it. I'm going to get in on that. I'm, fa- I'm fascinated by their lack of visible presence. You know, like <laughs> you see the head come out and I'm like, never seen him in a screening. Don't know who that guy is. But by the way, they've made some cool choices this year. They went all vegan with their, um, their menu. The first award show, I think, to do that, which is really cool and interesting. And, and it looks good. I'd eat that. Yeah. And I think that they made a lot of room, especially to talk about Australia um, and to do it in a, a way that was, um, I don't know. I think they put a lot of social issues out there, not just the award winners. I was I was kind of uh, happily surprised by the Golden Globes last night. I don't know why. Maybe it was just being back after a long vacation. It was nice to kind of just uh, sit back and watch some ridiculous Hollywood stuff. Did you have a favorite outfit? I really like everything Kate Blanchett wears all the time. Oh my gosh. Kate Blanchett looks amazing. I like Olivia Coleman. I think that those choices are always interesting. The way she looks interesting. I thought, you know, Phoebe Waller Bridge looks great. And then oh, you gotta go. Suits. There were so many good suits. So many good suits. And Aquafina. So excited for Aquafina to get that award. She looked fantastic. Brad Pitt, very classic. I like when people look classically great. Uh, I liked it when we got to see Aquaman wearing a tank top. Oh, yeah. By the way, (laughs) he ripped that off so quickly at the after party, just chowing down on burgers. Uh, (laughs) I love it. Um, (laughs) uh, But all in all, a good night. And I I really am a fan of Joaquin Phoenix's performance, and I love his performance backstage when they tricked him into going into the press room, and he was so irritated about answering questions about the Joker. He's like, how many times can I answer this question about what it was like to prepare for this role? He's like, I, do you want me to change it a little? I, there's nothing else for me to say. Like, and it is funny. Like, I know that that's the job. Like, the job from here until the Academy Awards for all these people in contention is to talk about the work that they did. But man, it just seems like you want to just give a sheet of paper out. Like Steve Martin, when you meet him in the street, like he gives you a, a signed card. So I met Steve Martin and had a wonderful time, you know, and then it's signed like by <laughs> Steve Martin. And I feel like that's, what, I mean, like they have to find different things to ask too, because it's been written about already. I don't know. I just, I, I enjoyed his surliness about it because he was not surly as a person. He was really lovely to the press. He just wasn't into answering more questions about the Joker. Well, yeah, well, it was a good night. And I feel like I'm ready for the Oscars. I'm glad they're a little early this year. I feel like we're going to get through award season faster. Yes. I'm already getting that antsy thing. I think what's wonderful about, you know, Sundance Film Festival is it comes right when all of the critics are sick of talking about these same films. Right. And we finally get to see what we're going to be sick of talking about by next year. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm ready. I'm ready for the freshness. I'm ready I, to be lit up again. I like that. Well, you know, um, talking about freshness and, and keeping things contemporary, uh, this show oddly, has a long track record of picking films that have a direct connection to what is going on in modern day society. And I would say that um, when we picked our next batch of films, um, 
we had no knowledge of the events that are happening right now in our world. If only uh, we hung out more at Mar-a-Lago, we might have had an advance notice. We might have. And uh, I was pretty surprised to see just the convergence of what is going on in our world and this film that we're talking about today, which is another Stanley Kubrick feature, Dr. Strangelove. Let's get into it. The year is 1964, and the times, they are a-changing. Congress authorizes the war against North Vietnam, the passing of the Civil Rights Act and segregation in public, and bans employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. The Warren Commission concludes that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone in the assassination of JFK. The Beatles first appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show and officially blow up in the States. It's the first time the world is introduced to Bubble Wrap, the Ford Mustang, the Computer Mouse, Buffalo Wings, and G.I. Joes. The top movies of the year are My Fair Lady, Goldfinger, Mary Poppins, A Hard Day's Night, and today's film, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. It ranked at number 39 on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list, having slipped 13 points from its position at number 26 in 1997. Let's take a listen to a clip. We are rapidly approaching a moment of truth, both for ourselves as human beings and for the life of our nation. Now, truth is not always a pleasant thing. But it is necessary now to make a choice, to choose between two admittedly regrettable, but nevertheless distinguishable post-war environments. One where you got 20 million people killed, and the other where you got 150 million people killed. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. I will not go down in history as the greatest mass murderer since Adolf Hitler. Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in the history books. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Dr. Strangelove. It stars a bunch of people playing a bunch of characters with very, very, very uh, thematically resonant pun names. You have George C. Scott as General Buck Turgidson. You have Sterling Hayden as Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper. You have Keenan Wynn as Colonel Bat Guano. Slim Pickens as Major T.J. King Kong, and the debut of James Earl Jones as Lieutenant Luther Zog. You have Tracy Reed as a bombshell Miss Scott. And of course, at the top of the list, you have Peter Sellers playing three roles, not just one, not just two, three roles. Captain Lionel Mandrake, a British exchange officer, President Merkin Muffley, the President of the United States, and Dr. Strangelove, the man in the wheelchair with the evil, evil plans for what can happen to the future. The film itself is, of course, as you said, directed by Stanley Kubrick and co-written by Stanley Kubrick, Terry Southern, and Peter George, who wrote the original novel that this was based on. And basically the setup here is that Stanley Kubrick was very, very obsessed with what was going to happen with the future of nuclear war. He started reading billions of books about it. He had a a library, people say, of at least 60 books about atomic warfare, about the Cold War, about peace and they'll be creating bombs to create peace. And he was fascinated by this idea. He finally found a fictional novel he felt like he could adapt. And that was Dr. Strangelove, a film that he thought was going to be a serious, serious film about a serious subject and wound up being a comedy. He realized this whole idea of using atomic bombs for peace is such an insane idea. It can only be done as comedy. You know, I got really fascinated by that book uh, that Stanley Kubrick bases on, Red Alert, which was originally titled Two Hours Till Doom when it first came out. But Peter George is um, an interesting character in the, I guess, the world of Doctor Strangelove because he has a, a lot 
of issues with Stanley Kubrick and Terry Southern, because those two seemingly take a lot of the credit for the writing of this. And I believe that Peter George, whose name is also there on the script, feels like, no, this is my this is my story. They didn't credit me at all. Terry Southern just came in at the end and and kind of punched it up. And looking at the book, Red Alert, and reading, you know, I didn't read the book, but I did read the Wikipedia entry for it. <laughs> um, it's, very, it it's very similar as far as the structure of the film. And I actually think the end is, uh, is kind of comical as well, because in the end of Red Alert, the president offers up to the Soviet premier that, yes, they are going to bomb Russia, but in exchange, they can bomb Atlantic City. Uh, that was like the deal that they make at the end of the book, which seemed to have some uh, comedy elements to it. But there is this um, this interesting history around this book because this book was also uh, kind of plagiarized for another film called uh, Failsafe. But now Stanley Kubrick had owned the rights to Red Alert. So when Failsafe was going on, which is basically the same exact plot of Red Alert, but starring... Uh, Henry Fonda and Walter Matthau, Kubrick freaks out. He stops the release of that film so Strange Love can come out before the movie Failsafe, which is based on Red Alert because that was plagiarized. I mean, there's so much going on here based on the source material, but we're in 1964 where I think this is on the minds of a lot of people. And what Kubrick does that makes it really more interesting and what makes it more resonant is he does what you said, makes it a comedy. Yeah, I mean, it's on the minds of a lot of people, in part because in 1962, we had the huge crisis with Cuba, where we realized that the Soviets were putting nuclear missiles onto Cuba that could hit us at any angle. And there was a gigantic showdown between JFK, between Khrushchev, between Fidel Castro, about what to do, where JFK was in the position of getting a lot of bad advice, to be honest. Right. Like a lot of his chiefs of staff were like, invade Cuba again, like attack, bomb, destroy Cuba. Like there was a man named Curtis LeMay who was, he's one of our longest serving generals in American history. And he he's responsible for like firebombing Japan. He's responsible for the death of a lot of civilians. He's not the most trustworthy figure in American military history. But he was like, yeah, go for it. Let's do it. Let's attack. And like the fact that JFK's strategy for dealing with the nuclear crisis was just to blockade the ships, which eventually succeeded without right. having anybody die. He called that one of our greatest failures of America, that we wow. didn't just like bomb the hell out of them. He's also responsible for saying that he wanted to bomb the Vietnamese back to the Stone Age. Tough guy, awful guy. And he's the person who is the inspiration here for George C. Scott. But I do want to say before we move on, Failsafe is terrific. I don't know if right. you've ever seen it. It is a wonderful movie. I remember seeing it a long time ago. I feel like it was something I watched in high school because as I was doing research, it all kind of came back to me. And it was a movie that I think at the time was very well reviewed, but yeah. just not a critical success at all. Yeah, it's directed by our buddy Sidney Lumet. Yes. And did you know that it was remade in the year 2000? No. Yeah, I actually pulled a little clip of the trailer of it. It was updated as a live TV show. You know how we do Grease Live? Yes. They did Failsafe Live. And they kept it in black and white, right? Uh-huh, because there's a man in here who likes to keep things in black and white. Here, let's listen. We are now in a technical state of war. We're going to fire off all their rockets. Well, that leaves us with what alternative, General? We have to prove to them that this is a mistake. Order the fighters in. Shoot down the bombers. Richard Dreyfus, Brian Dennehy. Nola Wiley, Harvey Keitel, George Clooney. The nukes are catching up! I catch some of it! Failsafe. 
Wow. You know what? Now, as I just watched that, maybe it wasn't that I remember watching the Henry Fonda version <laughs> of it. I may have just remembered that because that seems like the stars of ER attack. <laughs> yeah. uh, Noah Wiley, Henry Fonda, kind of the same. <laughs> you know, the big difference between the original source material and uh, Dr. Strangelove, besides the overtly comedic elements, was that the film and the book originally started out with aliens landing on planet Earth after this nuclear destruction, trying to figure out what exactly happened. And there were early versions of uh, script drafts where that's how Kubrick wanted to open the film. I think it's so much stronger the way that it it opens. It opens in a very somber way. There's no sound. You have this title card that basically I think does a great job of saying this is so real, but it's not real. Like it's, I feel like it's sort of, I don't know if Stanley Kubrick was told to put that in front of his film or if by putting it in front of his film, he makes the film feel more real. And I feel like it's probably the latter. Yeah, I mean, the the film, it basically opens on this card to saying like, the U.S. Air Force says that they, they have safeguards. None of this is going to happen. Don't worry about it. To me, that feels like the studio, Columbia, being nervous and well, saying, like, please don't get mad at us, U.S. government, because the truth is this could have happened. I mean, it almost happened, not even with the U.S. Air Force, but with the Soviets. Like during that Cuban crisis, there was a moment when one of the deep, deep, deep submarines in 1962 right. that had nuclear warheads on it. They thought that the war had started because they were out of radio service. Right. And so they took a vote and they were like, can we launch one of our nuclear missiles? We think that the war has already begun. And they had to get a unanimous vote. And two people said yes. And the third guy said no. And that is how close we came in 1962. Wow. So safeguards. Well, yeah, I, mean, I can't imagine trusting them in 1964 when this movie comes out. And I know that Kubrick was also nervous because Ken Adams, who did all the set design for the film, it's a beautifully designed movie. Um recreated a B-52 bomber apparently from one image that was in like a British flying magazine. It was basically just one image of a cockpit and they brought real soldiers on board the prop and they're like, this is an exact replica. And he was nervous, Kubrick, that maybe Ken Adams had done some illegal research to find out exactly how this bomber looked because it was such an exact replica. Which, by the way, those buttons reminded me very much of Star Wars when they were getting ready to, you know, launch the Death Star laser. It was like, click, 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 click. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like there must have been some element of Lucas that had to be inspired by that, like the amount of switches and the way it was all kind of done. I love switches. I love switches. I actually kept thinking about Star Wars watching this because I was thinking, oh, hey, it is the Death Starian. Mm. You have this thing where if it aims at its target and blows it up, then everything is destroyed as we yeah. know it. And you have James Earl Jones there on the plane being like, <laughs> let me tell you how this is going to work. All right, here we go. We ready for this. Um, and I mean, did you know, by the way, that like they have a new thing? It's I was just reading an article about it. Where instead of having a ton of switches on Navy ships, they've had something more like an iPad controlling them. They just started to reinstall this oh, a couple wow. of years ago, and it sucks, and nobody can figure out how to use it, and now our ships are harder to steer. Wow. So the yeah. the, the uh, kind of the classic that – I love that idea of like the tactile nature of buttons and switches and gears – 
make something easier to control. I mean, the idea of like swiping, I I know, and I don't want to be like an old man. I have those AirPod Pros. And for me to like figure out how to do the noise cancellation on them, like it was so much easier when it was a switch and I'm trying to rub them like I'm going to make a genie come out of my ear. I don't know. I hate it all. Sometimes just having a tactile switch or a turn, it's so much more fulfilling. And I told you that I got to flip a switch on the Millennium Falcon, right? You did. I did. I'm so I just jealous. want to say that again. Well, I mean, look, I got to do it at Galaxy's Edge. No big deal. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk uh, about one thing before we get into the actual film. And it's just, I think, my fascination with Kubrick. And, you know, I've always really been a fan of Kubrick films. Going through this list, I've become a bigger fan of Kubrick films, especially the films that we've talked about on this list. And I think one of the things that I love about him is – that every decision is so um, cleanly thought out, you know, for better or for worse. And I think you have to talk about the title sequence of this film, like the lettering of the title sequence. They're artistic. They're not like a typeface. It it feels different. I think it feels a little bit more fun and uh, a little less serious. I think it sets the tone that this is going to be more of a satirical film. It's not a heavy film, but yet you're juxtaposing that on these images of these B-52 bombers and them loading up. And there is this, this kind of childish nature to the, the way that the titles are versus what we're actually seeing like the weapons of war. Yeah, there's all these different tonal clashes that I admire so much. Childish is exactly the word I was thinking of when I was looking at it. It feels like little kids doodling in their notebooks. It yeah. makes you realize that war is about human decisions, human people putting pen to paper and screwing everything up. You know, that it, it makes you not feel like you can trust it. Like if it was the cold kind of clinical giant font, the mm-hmm. way that George C. Scott talks about things, you know, they talk about things without the human element, like, ah, you know, mega casualties and stuff. Mega deaths. Mega deaths, Which yeah. is so funny because mega deaths is actually a true... Like a, a, a true thing that these scientists that would talk about nuclear war would actually say when Kubrick yeah. is doing this research, which is such a funny, I mean, this, there's a section in the film where they talk so casually about 10 to 20 million people dying, you know, mega death. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that it was really great how they captured that idea of like people who are in this business of coming up with these yeah. disaster plans it is nothing to they them. see it they they see it as a bloodless game yeah and i think the font here brings the human touch back into it there's also a misspelling which i'm not going to bring up but oh. if anybody catches the misspelling tweet at us i want you to see but also can we play a clip of the music because yeah. you have this childish font you have these planes in the air and then you have this score, which cuts against everything else. Mm. Because you would think a film like this would open up with like snare drums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And instead we get this. I mean, it sounds like a couple waltzing. This is what you oh. hear when somebody saddles up to the bar and they're like, Carol Lombard, may I have this dance? I mean, and look, we, you know, not to get into the ending right away, but it's exactly what happens at the end, you know, where we're watching the nuclear destruction of our or a world we're listening to will meet again, you know. Yeah. Um, and I mean, but I thought I had a filthy mind because I was like listening to this music and I was looking at these planes. And, you know, one of them is refueling the other. So yeah. it's like inserting into the other plane. And I was like, oh, this is dirty. And then I yeah. thought, Amy, you're crazy. And then I read an interview with, with Kubrick where he's like, oh, no, it's supposed to be planes fucking. Wait, oh. Not in those words. No, but by the way, this movie is 
fueled by the idea of sex and violence, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you kind of meet George C. Scott's character in a moment of, I don't know if it's post-coital or it's pre-coital, like, you know, like you're you're always kind of, I, I think, seeing a lot of our characters uh, that want war in this this moment of, uh, for lack of a better term, and I apologize for this, but like this blue balls, they're just ready to go. They want, <laughs> they want to, you know, and until they finally the explode, until man. they explode at the end. I mean, look, you have, you know, Slim Pickens riding, literally riding it into, you know, into the ground. Yeah, you know, you it's have like, George Scott talking to his girlfriend like she's a bomb. You know, yes. he, he says, "You just start your countdown, and I'll be here before you can say blast off." I mean, and and you have, you know, George C. Scott like just literally foaming at the mouth. He is like, you know, he's putting in that gum. You know, and I think the reason why there's so much gum there is because you can't smoke in the war room. You know, so you're, I love that idea that you're just, just shoving his mouth full of gum. And it's like, these are animals, right? Yeah. We are animals. And, and this goes back to this idea. Kubrick of thinking, was a big gum chewer, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Uh, well, you know that uh, Dr. Strange Loves Glove uh, was actually also inspired by Kubrick because uh, Peter Sellers saw Kubrick like managing the lights with like this heavy, dark glove. And he's like, oh, I want that for Strangely. <laughs> um, tell me what you think about this. Because this is a thought I was wrestling with last night. It's like, I think that he does something in all of his films where he is dealing with humanity. It's not necessarily about characters. It's asking, I mean, yes, the characters are interpreting, you know, these larger concepts of humanity, uh, you know, and, and this idea of, you know, destruction and in, and sex and our, our animalistic needs. It's not necessarily about a character's journey is about humanity's, the bigger things that we wrestle with. And, you know, whether it's something in like eyes wide shut, it's, you know, it's infidelity, or if it's something in clockwork orange, it's, you know, it's about, you know, it's about violence and crime and, you know, and it, there's, there's a lot of these big ideas, you know, exploration in 20, you know, 2001. They're just these big, big things. I think that that makes all of his films um, feel like they resonate longer because it's it's not just about a character journey that we've seen someone else do. He's taking these big swings, even in a movie like Spartacus. And we talk about Spartacus, like Spartacus isn't like one of the best characters, but the story is something that's kind of oddly universal. Like you can kind of, you can get on the side of him. I, I don't know if that resonates to you at all. Like, I just feel like he's tackling very big things. And I think that's what makes each one of these movies have this feeling of the now. Yeah. I mean, I feel like they're about inhumanity. Right. You know, like we consider ourselves civilized and he's always reminding us that we're not and that we're capable right. of putting people into slavery and bondage, like in Spartacus. We're that, animals. Yeah. He, the film he does, you know, to put this in the context of his career, Dr. Strangelove, he does Spartacus, hates that experience, does Lolita, which mm. is in its own way a story of inhumanity and romance yeah. and desire and compulsion. Yeah, it's a very lopsided romance. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and it's a weaker film, but it brings him into the orbit of Peter Sellers, who's right. a star in that film. And then after Dr. Strangelove, after he blows up the world, it really makes 2001 feel like he's trying to heal in a way. He's like, we destroyed Earth, but let's find meaning. Let's find resonance yeah. and and hope, even some sort of a god figure in the cosmos. Maybe there's maybe there's something greater than what we humans are capable of. By the way, I saw a connection between this film and 2001, which is there is um, the I don't know the positions of all the people on the bomber, but the one person who's kind of reading the coordinates, who reads the coordinates, he's like, we have this amount of fuel. 
this is where we're going. This is the amount of hours. I'm like, oh, that's very much a howl type of voice. It's just like reading information, this amount of fuel, this amount of time. Here we go. It's our target. It just, it just made me, it connected me to this voice that has no emotion. It's just basically saying, here are the facts. This is what we're doing. This is where we're going. And the idea that also maybe the best human is yet to be created in 2001. You know, this is because he is kind of talking about this grossness of, you know, the world that we came from, the world that we are, and now the rebirth. I mean, 2001 really lives with this idea of, or ends with this idea of the rebirth. Like, what is the new man? What is the new man capable of? And I think it was beautifully answered in 2010. Yeah, 2010. Exactly, Paul. Exactly, Paul. <laughs> no, watching this movie gives me a greater appreciation for the critics who went to go see 2001. Because this film... Is, so, is black and white, it's very verbal, it's very funny. It sets up this idea of, oh, this Stanley Kubrick, this is the kind of thing he does, you know, when you when you set him loose. Like, mm-hmm. we're now paying attention, and he's mean and funny and satirical and political, and then you suddenly have him go from this film to his very next one, and it's visual awe, and it's yeah. almost silent. And it feels like the work of a different director, you might think, at the time. It almost feels like, I didn't know that the guy who made Strange Love could do that film. Well, I mean, his body of work is so vastly different, and uh, and I think really... Going back to what I was saying earlier, like the idea that he puts so much into all these films and really making sure that he gets it right. I mean, the fact that he was wrestling with AI, that movie that uh, Steven Spielberg eventually took over so many years before his death. He even wanted to make a sequel of Strangelove at a certain point, you know, that he wanted Terry Gilliam to direct. Like he, I think, was working on so many projects. And then when one would kind of get ready, like he was incubating. He was like a big mother hen and he had all these big ideas to kind of. Big mother hen. I'm picturing his face on a big hen, buddy. Oh, I want to see him just sing on an egg. I mean, that should be a great, uh, just an egg of ideas. Do you think he'd be able to sit on the egg but not crush it? Or would he get up and he would have egg on his pants? No, he'd be like a mother hen. They're bigger. You know, I think he he would. uh, He'd kind of like swoop down a little bit. Yeah, I think think he would be a very, I think, look, the care that he takes with all his films, I think he would take with his would eggs. You his eat egg one of his egg? I mean, yeah, I'm eating his eggs right now. I'm eating his 2001 egg. I'm eating his Dr. Strangelove egg. I'm eating all the eggs. <laughs> um, the one thing I will say about this film, and I know that we probably don't have enough time to get into like Peter Sellers as a human being, but you know, it's easy to say that he's a difficult person, right? He is a person that's wrestling with a lot of stuff. I can't even speak to it in a way that I quite fully understand, but he is an unhappy person. He is a, maybe a curmudgeon, maybe even dealing with a little bit of depression, like, and a very particular person. And, um, you know, so even getting Peter Sellers to do this movie with him was a challenge. But what I think Peter Sellers brings out in Kubrick in this is a looseness to this film. We, we talk about Clockwork Orange, like how they improvise that scene, that, that very famous, um, you know, rape and torture scene in that house. You know, they were working with Malcolm McDowell to find it. And here you see a lot more of the the seams. It feels incredibly improvised. Whenever Peter Sellers is on screen, it feels like he is riffing. Um, and there's something really kind of magical about how much of a filmmaker Kubrick is and these, you know, painting these very strong lines and then letting this kind of wild man loose in the middle of it, you know, and I've watched a bunch of behind the scenes footage and 
Peter Sellers is making people laugh. He's doing character, first versions of characters that are, you know, his president was very effeminate at first, and they kind of reined that in. He had um, a cold and an inhaler for a long time, yeah. and that was making people laugh too much. Yeah, so it, it feels like there's a playfulness to this film that you don't necessarily get in other films. Like, it just feels like, you know, I think something that you would associate with, like, a Judd Apatow movie. Like, oh, let's just see what happens. And, you know, so much so that the end beat of Peter Sellers getting out of the chair and rising and, you know, like, I can walk is clearly an actor forgetting that he's in a wheelchair and just, you know, getting up to make a point and then improvising in that moment. And there's, and it's, and you're, you know, card cut, but that's, it It feels improvised, but it feels fun. It feels like you're watching, again, this childlike playfulness to this very dire surroundings of the whole film. Yeah, I always think about uh, the moments when he's in the wheelchair and he's trying not to salute. He's trying yes. not to give the Nazi salute. And I always imagine how hard it must have been for everybody in that room to keep silent. Oh my gosh. You know, how do you keep straight, how do you have a straight face? Like A lot of the behind the scenes footage of him on the phone, everyone's dying laughing at all times. (laughs) I want to play a little bit of him on the phone because I saw a glimpse of the script, you know, when he's on the phone as the president trying to call Russia and trying to be like, sorry, here's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a note in the script where Kubrick described his character speaking as though he was a quote unquote progressive elementary school teacher was his note about how he wanted the lines to be delivered. So think about that when you hear this phone call. And then I I have a theory. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. (laughs) Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know... Just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, Well, let me finish, Dimitri. (laughs) I mean, I was so struck by the exactitude of progressive school teacher. Yes. I mean, that's so specific. So I did a little bit of Googling. And there is a show that came out the year that they were filming this. You might recognize this voice. Is with the fair amount of practice you can really positively learn your trade. Yes, you can. You've got to learn your trade. That's the same thing with reading and writing and those numbers and all of that. Don't learn it by magic. You don't just turn a knob and all of a sudden you know what three and two is. No, sir. And you don't turn a knob and all of a sudden you play the clarinet. I might take this up again in my elderly years. Yep. But right now, there's something that I can blow a lot better than a clarinet. I mean, you're you're so right. I mean, there is something so... I mean, there's something so funny about just like a silly little thing. A funny... He went funny. He went funny. Um, you know, while you were thinking about Mr. Rogers, I was thinking about somebody who was kind of making his career at this point doing what that scene, I love that scene of him on the phone with Dimitri, but uh, this is Bob Newhart doing 
what his stand-up comedy was all based in, which is basically these phone conversations. You've, you found a shell on the beach. You, uh, you, you, you think that's unusual? Uh, uh, do you, Willard, finding a, a shell on the beach? <laughs> it, it, it isn't that kind of shell. Uh, what's the matter? Doesn't it uh, sound like the ocean when you hold it up to your ear, Willard? It... <laughs> oh, oh, that kind of shell. Oh, it's probably a dud of some kind, Willard. I'll, I'll send some men out and they... Oh, is, is, is that right? Gee, I, was, uh, I was sort of hoping that was your watch, uh, making that noise, Willard. <laughs> you know, this is the humor that we're missing out on by texting all the time. We should go back to phone calls, if nothing else, before the dialogue. I just, I love, I mean, they both obviously have an amazing talent of just... It's so engaging to just watch one side of the phone conversation from both both parties. I mean, Peter Sellers, that scene, I could watch that scene forever. And it seemed like they went in a million different directions with it. And I wanted to, uh, not to jump right into another clip, but there's a great documentary about Peter Sellers. And they have a little bit about how Kubrick and Peter worked on this film. And I just thought it was interesting because I think there was a real ability to find moments. So, you know, they may have worked on that scene for days, knowing Kubrick, you know, and and then they found something that really, really worked. And this is a little uh, taste of it. Stanley Kubrick used to come round and wait for him to come home every night. Not every night, but trying to talk him into doing this part. They'd done Lolita together. He uh, would come round and he said, oh, this is Kubrick. He's bugging me for the." And I think, really, uh, at the end of the day, I think it's one of the best things he's ever done. When Peter was called onto the set, he would usually arrive walking very slowly and staring morosely. I'd clear the crew from the stage and we would begin rehearsing. As the work progressed, he would begin to respond to something or other in the scene. His mood would visibly brighten and we would begin to have fun. Improvisational ideas began to click and the rehearsals started to feel good. On many of these occasions, I think Peter reached what can only be described as a state of comic ecstasy. I filmed him with many cameras, never less than three. Well, also, I mean, Sellers, I think, is responsible for why Terry Southern got involved with this film. Yes, because didn't he give the magic Christian to Kubrick as a gift? Exactly, yeah. What happened is, like, Terry Southern gave one of his friends a copy of The Magic Christian, which is a book that he did that became a movie with Ringo Starr that we talked yes. about when we did our, our Beatles show here. Um, and then that friend gave a copy of the book to... to to Peter Sellers and Peter Sellers loved the book so much that he bought a hundred copies and he would oh, just wow. give them out to people. So he gave one to Kubrick when they were doing Lolita together. And it's, I actually read that book. It's a great, it's a great book. Terry Southern is an interesting writer. Uh, obviously, like I mentioned earlier, he was also tasked with kind of writing a sequel to Strange Love, uh, which involves Strange Love living in a bunker with all these women. I think it was called Son of Strange Love. Um, Sons. And, and when he passed away in 1995, uh, they found some of the notes uh, about that. Um, well, I mean, apparently, like, he and Kubrick would ride together every day. They'd, like, get in the car very early at 5 in the morning and then ride to set. And then as they were riding to set, they would rewrite that day's pages. They were just always working on this film nonstop. And and I think what Kubrick liked about Terry Southern is that he would push the ridiculousness up to the exact right point where it could still be believable. I mean, the fact that, you know, Ripper is obsessed with this conspiracy theory about the fluoridation of water. And, you know, he says something like, you know, they're impurifying our precious bodily fluids and he will not give his essence to any women, even though he does partake Yet again, with yeah. another character on the AFI list who will not share his seed with women. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's such a funny idea and I think it captures a lot of this 
you know, again, going back to what you're talking about, this idea of sex and violence, these pent up military men, you know, the American military are pent up, but yet the British military officer who's there on like a kind of a, a soldier exchange program is the rational one. It's not all soldiers are insane. It's, it's just American soldiers, you know, are, you know, that's what he's getting at there. Like these generals are, are power hungry. I mean, at one point they even say, you know, that, presidents shouldn't be able to make these decisions. You know, generals need to be able to make these decisions. Yeah, let's play a little bit of that speech. You know, this is a speech by Sterling Hayden, who's pretty fascinating, by the way. Like, Sterling Hayden, he did not want to be an actor. He's this Mm -hmm. guy, he's like six foot five, right? He's massive. He's just a guy who likes sailing. And so he only took up acting because he wanted to make some money to go buy a better boat. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he shows up in Hollywood, and he's treated kind of like a male bimbo, which is why he hates Hollywood so much. I mean, people call him the most beautiful man in the movies, and somebody else, they would call him the beautiful blonde Viking god. He was always incredibly uncomfortable with this, and he kept trying to quit Hollywood, and then he kept getting brought back, and then he kept trying to quit, and then he kept getting brought back. He's fascinating. He's also um, a Silver Star Marine himself. Like, he fought during World War II. Uh, so this is him. That's just a little bit of background of him. He met Kubrick when they did The Killing together. Oh, and we've actually already seen him. He was our crooked Captain McCluskey when we did The Godfather. Oh, wow. Yeah, same guy. Oh, same right, guy. yeah. Yeah, he's wonderful. Let's listen to that speech. Mandrake, do you recall what Clemenceau once said about war? Uh, no, I didn't think I do, son, yeah. He said war was too important to be left to the generals. When he said that, 50 years ago, he might have been right. But today, war is too important to be left to politicians. They have neither the time, the training, nor the inclination for strategic thought. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration Communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. Yeah, and a couple of things I find just so striking about this. I mean, one, you definitely get the sense that I'm a man who knows that we built these bombs and damn it, I want to see them go off, Mm -hmm. right? But also, this kind of subtle building in of his fears of fluoridation, his his awareness, quote unquote, which is, you know, half nonsense, that the Russians never drink water. They only drink vodka. And it must be because they've been poisoning the water. I mean, these paranoid conspiracy theories are so chemtrails. They're so right. pizzagate. They feel so relevant today. Well, it just seems that even the most sane-minded person can go full in on a conspiracy theory. They can convince themselves of anything. It's, you know, I think that the idea of denial is such a strong instinct that we all have uh, as human beings that this is kind of goes hand in hand with it. Like you hear something that makes some level of sense and you can find everything, especially now in the day and age that we live in, that can just back that up. And and whether whether it's researched or not, we it's harder and harder to to find out anymore. Yeah, and I think what what I find so fascinating is that it seems that when Kubrick was reading all of these books and all of these magazine articles and everything he could find about, you know, the militaristic mindset and and the nuclear buildup, what really struck him was that you just have this strange paradox at the center of these sane people acting like paranoics, you know, yeah. or supposedly sane people acting like paranoics, well, building in these 
paradoxes in the machine that you have these signs everywhere, you know, that say that peace is our protection, but yes. their form of peace is by building up these military weapons. And it is insane that not only did Kubrick nail this in 1964, everybody saw this movie. People like Reagan saw this movie yeah. because when he got to office, he was like, show me the war room. And they're like, Kubrick made it up. But even seeing this movie, he did the exact same mistakes. You know, when, when Reagan comes into office, he he decides to start building up the Star Wars project, you yeah. know, taking the name of Star Wars. Like, it's such a clever trick that he would do because he knew media and politics really right. well in Hollywood that he used a name everybody liked to get support for his gigantic shield for peace, as he calls it. But when he built that shield for peace, when he built this giant weapon in the 80s, having seen Dr. Strangelove, that's what freaked Russia out. And then they started building their version of the doomsday machine. Well, they started like, building a thing called Dead Hand that would go off if he ever unleashed his weapons. And it's like you can watch the movie and not get the movie. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I think the idea of nuclear war is based on this idea that they talk about in this movie, like this mutual assured destruction, right? Which is like, if one person does it, then everyone will, like, it basically like, no one wins. And, but yet we still, it's, you're chasing this, you're chasing this thing, but it's never, there's no winner in here, you know? And I think that, you know, there, I think people try to figure out ways that they can win or not be seen as weak. And it's, it's a, it is an insane game. It's like, you know, we, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, but expecting a different result. And that's, you know, sort of a, what, the idea of nuclear war is it's like, well, what, we hold this many, we need this, or we don't, you know, it's like, we need this many, we're going to do this. And, uh, and you, these are insane people. And one of the reasons we talked earlier about why Peter Sellers changed his president character, not to have the inhaler, not to sound uh, incredibly effeminate or stuffy was because they wanted his president to actually appear rational because everyone in this room, you know, carrying the binders of Megadeth, hearing the 20 million people being killed, like we needed to have some grounding of reality here, like some some sane voice. And I think yeah. that, that actually that performance is actually a really beautifully rendered and simple performance from Peter Sellers. It, it, it's it's actually a very believable president. Yeah, I mean, watching this, I kept thinking, like, if only we could trust still that our president was the most serious person in the room, in a room full of people who want to just blow stuff up and see the world burn. I mean, although they do give him that absolute undermining feminine name. I mean, Merck and Muffley is two different ways of saying, right. you're a big fat pussy. Yeah. Is that the yeah. way that Kubrick is envisioning him, or is that the way that the military is envisioning him in a way because he, to the audience's point of view, is the most sane and not reactionary, trying to keep the peace, trying to figure out a way to basically end this. You know, like he is our hero. Exactly. But actually, before we even get too far away from talking about Sterling Hayden real fast, I just wanted to say that I realized you know, when researching this episode, what it meant to cast him in this film, because he is one of our figures who also plays into the whole HUAC investigations. Oh, interesting. Sterling Hayden, he went to war, he came back, he actually was part of the Communist Party for a little bit. He went to a couple meetings, he liked their ideas a lot. Oh, wow. And then when he got called up to testify, he named names. And he felt awful about it immediately and felt terrible about it for the rest of his life. He was known by everybody as an alcoholic, as a heavy drinker. And in the 80s, there was a documentary about him that was called Pharos of Chaos. And it was basically like 
these couple documentary people go to his boat. He's living on a boat. He's incredibly drunk. He's incredibly high. And he's talking about this moment that he testified. And you can hear the regret in his voice. Why do you do a thing like that? I mean, it was no good. No damn good. How did people in Hollywood or in the studios react to you? I mean, well, of course, the people who were in the party, the people who were hurt, didn't say anything, hmm? except to each other. Uh, the head of Paramount Pictures, Frank Freeman, called me in and said, uh, I'm going to give you a job right away. Hmm? Ronald Reagan sent me a telegram. Said, I'm very proud of you. Or so Bill Holden sent me a telegram. Said, I've never been more proud of you in my life. Reagan said, uh, you're 100% American or something. Eh? Now, here we are. That tells us a lot about Mr. Reagan, from my point of view, because never mind politics. We're talking about human behavior. And if a man betrays his friends, eh, whatever, when it's already known. So I, my career, in quotes, uh, kept on, you know, going a little bit. And I, and I, and I lived with it. Hmm? I wanted to play that clip for a couple yeah. of reasons. Like one, that's one of the first times I've ever heard somebody talk openly about how Hollywood rewarded yes. them for doing a thing that they always hated themselves for doing and that kind of positive pressure you get. I loved, I love hearing him be open about that at, you know, decades later um, towards the end of his life. I also really think that like knowing that this was happening in his life gives so much extra dimension to him playing a brigadier general who wants to kill everybody who triggers this whole war because he's right. terrified of communism. Like, Knowing it, when you sat down in the theater in 1964, you probably knew that he had testified and that he was a communist, and so or that he had had dabbled in the party at all. And so I like him showing the ridiculousness of people who persecute communism in this moment. I think that was really brave, and I never put that together until I learned a little bit more about it. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. I mean, you mentioned that, like, he populated this film with people who are really difficult to work with. Mm -hmm. And I think he did that with a lot of design. I mean, here he is. He's a difficult man to work with. James Earl Jones described working with him during this movie as a dictator. He said he treated actors like they were, quote, technical elements in his design. But yet he's working with people who have a ton of personality. And he's figuring out a way to kind of shape these two things together. Well, it seemed like everyone was basically an animal in a cage that was all being experimented on in different ways. Peter Sellers was able to improvise and be free and, you know, embrace whatever they wanted to do. George C. Scott, he would tell, play it up, be bigger, be bigger, be bigger. And he would tape the rehearsals and actually used the bigger reactions 
in the actual film. Which Which George C. Scott hated. hated. I mean, that one moment again where he falls on the floor, another moment like this kind of crazy improvised pratfall, it seems so, it's it's perfectly done and it feels great for the character, but I could see an actor feeling like, oh, I'm not, like you, you making me look the fool. I mean, and then you have uh, Slim Pickens who is playing the captain of the B-52 bomber who's told, play this straight. This is this is a serious film. So everyone is under a little bit of a different idea on what they're actually making. And I think, and even to the point of what it actually becomes, how the film is all kind of put together at the end. I want to talk about the other ending later on, but I, I do like that idea that, you know, he is very careful to kind of manipulate everybody to kind of work in this film without them all being on exactly on the same yeah, page. Yeah, manipulate's a really interesting word. Which but I think, I think it works. Like, he kind of built everybody, you use the cage word, it's like he built the perfect cage for each of his animals, and they're all yeah. different shapes. And I think you need to do that because this film feels like a stage play. Like, if you had three sets, you could do this film, for the most part. You know, you have... You know, Ripper's office, you have the B-52 bomber, and you have the war room. And that's where we're going. That's the only three spots, roughly, I mean, you know, uh, that we're in between. And you need to, I think, create different dynamics so it doesn't feel like a drama. I think that's how you keep the comedy alive. It's almost like your game uh, is this, like your little quirk is this. Uh, And I think it makes for such an interesting film. I also will say that what I think he does really well is in a movie about mass destruction where your eyes glaze over at the fact of 10 to 20 million people being exterminated, he brings home the devastation of violence in a really real way on a micro level by showing the shootout between the soldiers of the base and the incoming American soldiers. Like they are having a gunfight. That's when the, you know, the camera becomes handheld. It feels more like something you would see in Full Metal Jacket or Paths of Glory. Like it's it's the cameras down, you know, behind the gunners. It's not shot in, it's sloppier. It feels like actually like war footage. And I think that that's a really effective way that he even changed the tone of the film because that that to me is the hardest part of the film to watch. It, it really is, uh, it's not the, I mean, you know, Ripper is funny in that, you know, or is it the British are coming, saying that to a British man and, you know, and, and pulling this gun out of his golf bag because his like hobby, his leisure hobby is, I think, violence, you know, to a certain extent, if you wanted to read the metaphor into that. Yeah, he does so much in those war scenes at the base with kind of simple effects. There's smoke and there's flying bullet casings and there's flying papers everywhere, but you really get the sense of the devastation. And there's moments in this film that I love because you kind of can switch back and forth between two pictures, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're in the bomber with all of the men, with Slim Pickens, with James Earl Jones, and they're being fired on. Yeah. And at one point you're like, you can switch back and forth between like, these would be our heroes in any other movie, like these brave American soldiers doing the mission that they've been told to do. And you're both rooting for them to yeah. survive. And you're also aware that if they survive, the entire planet's going to die. Well, that's interesting. And the people yeah. are doing, who are doing the most heroic things are doing them wrong. You know, the, this, the people on the ship are living a straightforward mission. You know, nothing that funny happens on the ship except for Slim Pickens jumping out of the plane. Yeah. They're like, we got to do this. The fate of the world depends on it. They're brainstorming. They're being ingenious. Like, okay, we can't hit that target. Let's go here. We can't have radio systems. We'll go low. Well, that's why I think they're doing everything right and they're doing it all exactly wrong. And I love switching back and forth between those perspectives. I think this movie does a few interesting things. 
it's attacking the military, right? The generals in the military for being war, especially American generals. But it's also applauding the servicemen, right? Because it's sort of like the servicemen are doing their jobs and they're fighting the hardest. You know, they are, you know, when they attack that military base, they are at both sides. You know, they're they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Now, they're not being guided by the right Voice, And I think that that's an interesting distinction to make. It's not like the military's dumb or soldiers are stupid. It's not about that. They're, they're doing what they, what they're supposed to be doing. And I wrote that down too. Like these are our heroes, like in multiple ways, you know, and then there are heroes on the base are also heroes, even though they're firing at American soldiers, like they're doing what they were ordered to do. And, you know, and I don't think this movie is like, you should question all your orders. I don't think that's the, sta- I think that, I don't think that's the statement they're trying to make. I think they're just trying to make the statement that you have to be careful about who is giving these orders. I think that's such a great distinction to bring up because, and I'm worried we're going to see it happen again. Whenever you disagree with what the generals are doing, the generals always tell you that you're not supporting the troops. The, you know, right. the military tells you that you're not supporting the troops. And this movie makes that distinction between supporting your troops and valuing their work and thinking all their generals need to be taken out to a field, given a giant pudding fight, and then, like, quarantined forever. Right. Well, I mean, but, you know, it's interesting, too, to see how when you have this room, this war room, which they're sitting around this table, which has green felt on it. You can't see it because it's a black and white film. Kubrick wanted to have this idea of like, it's a poker table. They're playing poker, right? They're bluffing. And the idea that like, you know, they're not bluffing, but they're just, they're playing their hands. Like it's amazing how the energy in that room can kind of build and build and build to the point where at the end of the film, they're seriously considering what strange love is telling them. They're like, yes, this sounds like a plan. We could do this. They're like, it's amazing how quickly a bad idea can become the best idea in the room because of the previous 10 minutes before it, you know, or an hour before it. You know, it's sort of like you are spiraling to find something. And that's sort of how I think you get these moments in our society where, you know, something kind of drastic or, or major happens because it just it slips by because you haven't you haven't seen you haven't read what happened before it. You just are kind of it is built to that internally. I mean, no one was there to be the level-headed person, like I think our president is being for the most part, until the very end when it's assured devastation. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I don't know. There was an article that came out in the New York Times this weekend that said that the decision to blow up Suleimani came because the military, the officers, the chiefs of staff gave Trump a whole list of options, yes. a whole menu. And they put that one at the top because it was the most extreme. And they were thinking, like, if we show you the range from, like, biggest yeah. thing you can do, most extreme to less, he'll pick something in the middle. Right. Which he didn't. He picked the thing on the top and nobody in the room talked him out of it. It's yeah. Like, don't give people options that you don't want them to take. Right. Because, it's yeah, you're expecting maybe a rational mind to prevail in that moment. Um I wanted to go back to the soldiers just for a second because James Earl Jones is his first film, and this is him on the Dick Cavett show talking about how he was kind of asked to play this part and what Kubrick wanted from the B-52 crew. You know, he had just done Paz Glory, I think, or one, one of those, one of his Probably. other great, great works. Yeah. And so he's in New York looking at actors for, to play generals. So he, was, he wanted to see George C. Scott. Although he knew he wanted George, he wanted to see him work out in uh, in Shakespeare in the Park. Merchant of Venice? Shylock, Merchant of Venice. So he came to see it. He also, you know, I was playing Prince of Morocco. So these, these are not, this is not verbatim, but he said, I'll, I'll take the black one too. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I will not accuse uh-huh. Kubrick of saying that, but that's essentially what, what the thought was. Uh-huh. Oh, just wait. Uh, oh. One white it, and one black to go. Well, no, he wanted George C. Scott <laughs> and he wanted a, 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 a B, uh, B-52 yeah, crew of every ethnic. You know, the, the, the ethnic crew. Uh-huh. You're a Jew, an Irishman, a Canadian even, and a black guy, and an American Indian. You know, he went, he, mm-hmm. he said, I'll take the black one too. I thought that was interesting that he really wanted to make that crew very representative of every type of soldier. You yeah. know, not one dis- uh, definitive. It represents America. And then whenever right. you cut to the war room, it's just a bunch of old white guys who yeah. all look identical. And, like, I mean, and look he how uses far them we've come. Just, <laughs> oh, God. And he uses them... You're like silent props. I mean, most of the men in the war room never do any talking. No. But when you see the balance of the room shift to start standing behind Strangelove, you know that everything is lost. Yeah. That all these people are standing behind him and backing him and the president starts to look more and more alone. Yeah. You know, Slim Pickens, I think, gives a really beautiful speech when they start on the mission. Let's listen to it. Look, boys, ain't much of a hand at making speeches. I got a pretty fair idea that something doggone important is going on back there. And I got a fair idea of the kind of personal emotions that some of you fellas may be thinking. Heck, I reckon you wouldn't even be human beings if you didn't have some pretty strong personal feelings about nuclear combat. But I want you to remember one thing. The folks back home is counting on you, and by golly, we ain't about to let them down. Tell you something else. If this thing turns out to be half as important as I figured it just might be, I'd say that you're all in line for some important promotions and personal citations when this thing's over with. That goes for every last one of you, regardless of your race, color, or your creed. I mean, of course, there will be no promotions. There will be right. no world. There will be no anything. The idea of doing any of this for promotions is ridiculous. But I love... I love his commitment in that scene, and he means it. If I do have a well, tiny, he's playing it straight. He's playing it straight. If I do have a quibble with the film, I do hate how much we always hear Johnny come marching home every time we cut to the plane. It starts to drive me a little bit crazy. Oh, I kind of liked it for the same reason of that repetitiveness. It just felt like we're back. We're back here. Like these are these soldiers that are just <laughs> marching down the field. It's like there's no. They're not changing the beat. They're just. Going to do the job, which is what we're talking about. But I, 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 but I hear you saying. That's fair. However, I did pull a use of the song from a movie that got no love the other day at the Golden Globes. Mm-hmm. But we're going to give it some love on the show, and that is Joe versus the volcano. How are you, Joe? Yeah. How are you, Joe Banks? Yeah. You know, speaking of soldiers, uh, I just want to talk about one thing with George C. Scott, who I think is fantastic in this film. And I know that he's not happy with his own performance in it. And it was hard to kind of even find a clip of him talking about him not being happy about it. Um, but I love the character trait that he can't commit to anything. Whenever he is asked about anything, he's like, well, I, I don't want to make a judgment about that right now. I don't, I don't think all the answers are in on that. Like, I love that idea of being such a bureaucrat. Like, there is no, you know... When the president wants answers or or someone to affirm that something wrong has happened, it's like, well, I don't think we can make that judgment right now. It's just like a very subtle distinction of like 
no responsibility, takes no, you know, wouldn't even get on the phone, you know, like he's basically having this extramarital affair at a hotel. I mean, I don't even know what's going on there. Like she's on a tanning bed. It's such a bizarre thing, but he's just won't commit to anything. I think that that's a really interesting thing that yeah, the wiser are soldiers. He has yes. an answer for everything, but it's never a real answer except right. to say that we have to blow up a bunch of people. Right. You know, it always comes it would be back okay. to that. Right. Yeah. And he has this, I find really fascinatingly manipulative way of talking, you know, where he demeans the things he wants to demean. Oh, it's just a little thing, you know, mm-hmm. single slip up, a single slip up is how he talks about the thing that's going to start nuclear war. It's just a mistake, you know, and he is able to control the volume of the conversation while also always being the loudest person in the room where he feeling like he always has to respond to everything that's going to happen. His voice is the voice that matters, but he really does steer the way this entire conversation in the room goes by what he amplifies and what he, and what he plays down the volume on. I mean, let's listen to a little bit of him talking here. The Rusky talks, babe, but frankly, we think he's short of know-how. I mean, you just can't expect a bunch of ignorant peons to understand a machine like some of our boys. And that's not meant as an insult, Mr. Ambassador. I mean, you, you take your average Rusky, we all know how much guts he's got. Hell, look at, look at all of them, them Nazis killed off and they still wouldn't quit. Can't you stick to the point, General? Well, uh, sir, uh, if the pilot's good, see, I mean, I mean, if he's really Sharp. He can barrel that baby in so low. I mean, you ought to see it sometime. It's a sight. You're a big plane, like a 52. Vroom! This jet exhaust frying chickens in the barnyard. Yeah, but has he got a chance? Has he got a chance? Hell yeah! <laughs> I mean, his physicality here, he's always, whenever I look at him, he's oh, always yeah. in some sort of diagonal angle. Yeah. His jaw's up, his jaw's down, his arms are akimbo. He's so physical. He looks like a puppet a lot of times, like a painting of a clown who's kind of collapsed on the stairs. But that's something like he's foaming at the mouth. He's like, he's like, he's just kind of waiting to be unleashed. You know, he's like, he's up on chairs. He's down on the side. Like he's the only real movement. He yeah. he's attacks the Russian ambassador. You know, like he's on the floor. Like he literally is. He's a child. He's he like can't vibrating. be contained. Yeah. He's vibrating all the time. And when I was watching that scene in the in the movie, I thought, oh my gosh, I I think there is a moment in a film I love where they took George C. Scott and put him in a classic film that I worship. Mm-hmm. Maybe you think I'm crazy. I don't think so. Let's listen. Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I lived through the Black Plague, and I had a pretty good time during that. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. Not to mention the fact that you're talking to a dead guy. Now, what do you think? You think I'm qualified? I mean, if that is not George uh, C. Scott, is there not George C. Scott in that performance? I believe there is a little bit of George C. Scott there. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, and I, I love George C. Scott as an actor. I think he is incredible. I mean, we yeah. talked a second about Hustler the other day, you know, mm-hmm. the Paul Newman movie. He's amazing in that. I mean, he's he's he kind of has a little bit of that Brando-esque quality of the time. He's a guy who also would refuse his Oscars when he right. was nominated. He said he didn't want, quote, he said the whole thing is a goddamn meat parade. I don't want any part of it. Well, and I mean, it's fascinating. Like he also, he had his own connection to the military in that like he, in, he enlisted in the Marines after World War II. He was a little bit too young for it, but he spent his, his main tour of duty as an honor guard at military funerals at Arlington National Cemetery. Oh, wow. So he was he was a hawk, but he also I think really understood death and he saw he saw the families day after day after day after day come home and I think I think that must have really affected him too and I feel like you can see that in his performance. Yeah, I mean I think he 
also has the gravitas. I think, you know, you, I mean, I, I view him as Patton, which comes way later in the 1970. Uh, you know, that's, I, I think that's like burned into my mind of him. Um, but I think he just has that, that look of a, of a military man and to see him kind of be silly. It's very rare that you get to see that. I think that's like one of the reasons why Terry Crews, uh, works so well, like when you see him perform, because it's like you're not used to seeing comedy out of people who look a certain way. It's like you know, it's like it's it's uh, it's part of the comedy. It's like when you see Chris Hemsworth in Ghostbusters, like you're like, yeah, this, it, it's funnier. It's just funnier that the most attractive man in the world, or one of them, is is doing this. You know, like so. It's I think this idea of, of from Kubrick to really cast something like to cast pitch perfect for a drama and then play it up as as a comedy. Um, exactly. Had- I'm sad he doesn't get to like this performance as much as we do. Like, I can understand him feeling yeah. betrayed. Right. Well, I think it's probably more of who that. lies to your face. Like, he lied to his face. Right. But I'm sure the reviews were positive for him. It just was the ego crush of himself feeling like he couldn't trust his director. We've got to talk about Strange Love. And you talked about this idea of like couldn't contain laughter when you would see Strange Love. I mean, the voice is amazing and so distinctive. I want to talk about this clip about Peter Sellers talking about the voice. And, you know, just before we even play that, I just want to say that, you know, I think a lot of people think that Strange Love is supposed to be Henry Kissinger, right? But that has been debunked as false. Um, it was actually based on Von Braun, this rocket scientist uh, who was in the Nazi rocket program, was brought over to the U.S. But the voice is interesting. I didn't know this. This is the genesis of the voice. Take a listen. Uh, I was stuck, you see, because I didn't want to do just a, a sort of a, a normal sort of English broken German accent thing. Mm-hmm. So on the set was a little photographer from New York, a very cute little fellow called Ouija. You must have oh, probably yes. heard of him. Mm-hmm. And he had a little voice like this, he used to walk around a set talking like this most of the time. <laughs> he used to go and, and say, I'm looking for a girl with a beautiful body and a sick mind. <laughs> and I got an idea, I was really stuck with this, and I thought, you know, well, Ouija used to get all this stuff, everything. He used to have great big and larger lenses on the front of the camera mm-hmm. and a cloth over his head, and he'd just get ready to do it, and Stanley would say, not now, Ouija. He'd say, okay, and move it all away, you see. <laughs> I thought, if I put a German accent on top of that, you see, Van has suddenly got this thing, you know, there that's going up here and sent that stuff. And so I got into Dr. Strange Love. So really, it's Ouija. I don't know if he knows it, but uh, it's Ouija. But that was really interesting. And Ouija, obviously, uh, just a you know very famous photographer, as immortalized by Joe Pesci in The Public Eye. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, mean, I love the way that Peter Seller says slaughtered in this yeah. film. When he's like, the animals could be bred and slaughtered. <laughs> I mean, the, the gusto he puts on the words, that he uses his voice like yeah. a musical instrument, I love. I love that just visually the way they shoot him. You see him quietly in the back for a long time. Yes. You know, you cannot miss him because yeah. he's so visually distinct. And his then when hair you get is kind of like a racer head kind of. Yeah. When you get your first close-up of him, he's covered in ash, you know, because he's been smoking. Yeah. And there's he's already this fire. Oh, it's funny. I think about like, I was like, oh, George C. Scott is chewing gum because he couldn't smoke. But I guess he can smoke in there because yeah. he does smoke, yeah. There's no smoking in the war room. There's no smoking in the war room. Um, I love how they shoot him, too, because sometimes, I don't know how they even do the lighting on it, but there's there's shots where all you can see is the back of his hair, like mm-hmm. a glow, like an evil halo, but then just the rims of his glasses. And I don't know how you light just the rims of somebody's glasses, oh. but also the back of their head. No, I mean, it's, well, you know, they did all the lighting there in a really interesting way, because it was a concrete floor, very, like, 
I want to like use the term obsidian. Like it was, you know, like no one could obsidian. walk and no one could walk on it. It was very much like the monolith. Uh, no one could walk on it with their shoes until they were shooting. And, and they made all the lighting very natural. So it was from, you know, they, they took forever to kind of figure out how to light the set. So, it, you know, the reflections were coming off the ground. And I think like all that was very carefully laid out by the lighting design of the film. And, you know, um, by the way, we were talking about Peter George earlier he ended up writing a little bit of a postscript to the novel when this oh, was really? over, and he gave the full name of Doctor Strangelove. Oh, what is it? Do you know? Do you want to know what it is? No. All right. His full name is Doctor Lewis. Lewis. Uh huh. Make peace, Strangelove. Well, but no, wait. I thought Doctor Strangelove was a complete creation of Terry Southern and Kubrick. Did then did Peter George just jump in and be like, "Oh yeah, that I'm going to do that now too." Yeah, he like embraced him later and he like came up with this whole postscript idea. He gave wow. him this villain who was a pacifist named Goodfellow, and Goodfellow was like, "Bombs are bad." And Strangelove is like, "Bombs are great." And in his little short story, um as kind of an aside, they go on TV and they debate this, but Goodfellow overcomplicates everything. He can't explain things clearly. Oh, so he loses and Strange Love wins. And also, as a side note, this is all happening in his short story in this kind of sequel-ish idea. It's maybe more of a prequel, really. Yeah. The president is assassinated and he gets replaced by a vice president who is a rich, dumb northerner who uh, apparently is like a huge devotee of Polynesian music. And he just orders eight girls from islands every month to have sex with him while he's in so office. So bizarre. It's a little bit bizarre. It's a little bit gross. It's well, it also seems surreal. like Peter George is like just basically embracing what his novel wasn't, which was his novel was serious. And then this became like, well, that's what they go on. I wanted to talk about this, the idea of what strange love represents. And I was thinking about this and reading a little bit too, like um, the idea of like, he's representing fascism, right? Like the idea of like that, the hand wanting to get up, like, it's just like that it's, it is like lurking underneath the surface, you know, like this, like just wanting to get back into the game. And I, and I love that representation, you know, so much so that, you know, when finally, when the bombs go off, he is able to, to walk, you know, like it, it almost gives him like, it, it brings back fat, you know, it, yeah, brings, it brings back, back fast. Yeah. It moves again. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And it's, it's such an interesting ending because the original ending is also kind of fascinating. You hear about the original ending, right? It's, it was a pie fight, a pie fight in the war room. And, and, and it's really interesting because it's set up early on that when the Russian ambassador comes in, there's a giant buffet table with all these different things on it. I love that image too, that there's like, it's very well catered, the war room. Um, <laughs> I think that that kind of idea of a giant catering table in the war room was almost what started the switch in Kubrick's own mind of making this a comedy because he would talk oh, about like, he would talk about this film. He'd be trying to talk about like how to do it seriously, how to do it seriously. But he kept in the middle of the night, just starting to joke around things about like, well, what are they going to do when they're hungry? You know, what yeah. are they going to do in the middle of this? How will that affect things? I Instead love of that. Have this beautiful buffet table. That's uh, that. I love that. It's uh well. And then, so the, the end became this pie fight. And I kind of like that idea in theory, like it becomes, cause the movie is building, building, building. And it builds to literally the most slapstick thing you could ever do, a, a pie fight with all these generals, the president and, uh, you know, and and uh, and obviously the Russian ambassador. And it's and it just really like I think caps how ridiculous this entire world is. Uh, I know that people say that Kubrick just wanted to cut it because he felt like it wasn't in the tone of the film. Other people say that he cut it because um, 
you know, it, there's a line in it that said, you know, after the president had been hit with a pie, it's like, oh my God, the president had been taken out right in his prime. And he felt that that was too close to kind of, again, treading on uh, John F. Kennedy's death. And he just felt like, you know, let's get away from that. Uh, and I think you get this like kind of, again, an improvised ending. Um, and I think there was also even supposed to be a bit where, where Strangelove's Nazi hand uh-huh. grabbed a gun and like despite his control, you know, he was fighting it, yeah. raised the gun to his head to try to commit suicide. Oh but his God. sane hand is trying to fight it back. That was supposed to be happening in the I background. I love that. Well, you know, by the way, uh, you know, Strangelove in earlier drafts was called Von Klutz. I think and actually know this uh, because uh, watching this Terry Southern documentary, that was a Terry Southern Name and they're talking about like him pushing the boundaries of things like Strange Love. It's like very much a Terry Southern thing, and they kind of added that in there. I think um, Strange Love is better because Klutz would imply he doesn't get what he wants. He's sloppy. He's messy. When he yeah, gets everything he wants. No, I love it. Um, in that speech he gives about, I mean, he basically bribes the men into accepting world yes. devastation so that they can just have a lot of sex. A ratio of uh, ten women to. Each man, uh, w- wouldn't that necessitate the abandonment of the so-called uh, monogamous sexual relationship? I mean, uh, as far as men were concerned. Regrettably, yes. But it is, you know, a sacrifice required for the future of the human race. I hasten to add that since each man will be required to do prodigious service along these lines, the women will have to be selected for their sexual characteristics which will have to be of a highly stimulating nature. I must confess, you have an astonishingly good idea there, Doctor. Thank you, sir. I mean, again, it's exactly sex and violence. Yeah. And it's the, the one thing that makes every man in that room agree. The president, yeah. his eyes start to accept the yeah. idea. The Russians like the idea. Everybody's like, well, the way to solve all these men's problems is just by giving them 10 women. It's so crazy. And, oh, why? Oh, uh, just to talk about what uh, Peter Sellers is wrestling with as Dr. Strangelove. We talk about his hand that wants to do whatever it wants to do. Is it fascism or is it just a disability? We don't know. But it is actually a real thing. It's a real medical issue called agnostic apraxia. It's when there's been damage to the corpus callosum, the nerve fibers that connect the brains to hemispheres. Actually, the people who just um, found this uh, called it the Dr. Strangelove syndrome. And sufferers will slam their hands down and cry out they have no control over their own hands. Uh, which is just an interesting, uh, you know. Um, but, you know, uh, Strangelove is the third character that Peter Sellers plays. We didn't really talk about Mandrake that much, um, but he was supposed to play four. He was supposed to play the role that some Pickens played, um, and he just felt like he wasn't up for that part. And there's Well, he heard himself. Well, tell me what you heard, and then I'll... What I heard was, like, he was already a little bit reluctant about doing it, and then um, when they started to actually shoot a couple of the scenes... He fell out of the bomber and broke his leg. Oh, wow. And then he just couldn't. He was like, that's it. I'm not, I'm out. I'm not doing it anymore. Whoa, so he already was shooting that. Oh, I did not realize that. Yeah, I heard that that's part of why he was in a wheelchair, but then I haven't heard that confirmed too much. So I'm a little bit unsure, but that's the story I heard. What did you hear? Okay, no, well, uh, this is actually just a scene from a a film, a dramatic film, where Stanley Tucci plays uh, Stanley Kubrick and Jeffrey Rush plays Peter Sellers. And this is kind of them discussing the character that some Pickens plays. Boys, let's get this thing on the hump. We got some flying to do. Flatter. I'm not playing a bomber pilot. What can I do with that? Crammed in there. Oh, look. Let me just hear it again. 
Let me hear it again. Three characters is enough. Three is a good number. You're being paid for four. You're stretching me too thin, Stanley. Who do you think I am? I think you're whoever I want you to be. Then who am I now? Peter, have you ever heard of mutually assured destruction? I'm a few bars and I'll join in. It refers to when both sides of an atomic conflict are so powerful that if either side were to take action, it would inevitably result in the total annihilation of all concerned. I find this concept can be applied to many situations. You're a peculiar fucker, Stan. I like that calm threat. Yeah. It's interesting to even imagine Kubrick calm. I mean, I guess he was really calm, but I also hear that behind the scenes when he was making Strangelove, I mean, he's really young at this point. He's only 34. He's taking uppers and downers. He's just like hyped up all the time. He's not sleeping at all. He's losing his mind. So the idea that he could keep it together as well. Well, I imagine he was a little stressed out because Columbia Pictures only agreed to finance the film if Sellers played four roles. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. I mean, they were so suspicious of this entire movie. You know, there's this running gag in here where George C. Scott always thinks the Russian has secret cameras. Yeah. But I heard that Columbia would actually send spies with recorders to the set of Strangelove because they were really trying to get a sense of how much trouble they were going to be in when this film came out. I mean, it took Columbia a long time to even really be proud that they made this film. They were terrified. They would even call, like, the head of Columbia, Mo Rothman, he would call Terry Southern and he would give him messages because Stanley had stopped yeah. talking to them. He would say, just tell Stanley that New York does not see anything funny about the end of the world. Wow. They were really freaked out. And when they would talk about it to people before it came out, they would just be like, uh, it's definitely not anti-U.S. military. It's just a zany novelty flick, which does not reflect the views of the corporation anyway. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I have a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Well, you know, Amy, we've been talking about this movie for a little bit of time here, and I think there's so much in it. And it makes me just imagine that when this film came out, that it couldn't have not have been received kind of with universal acclaim because it's touching on something that we were just talking about in the beginning of the episode, that it feels of the now. I mean, so and it felt of the now then. So, like, what were, you know, were there any bad reviews of this film? There was, actually. There was one from... A guy we've had on the show many times, Mm. Bosley Crather of the New Mm. York Times. This is what he said about it. He said, Stanley Kubrick's new film called Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb is beyond any question the most shattering sick joke I've ever come across. My reaction to it is quite divided. And with here, he kind of wrestles Mm. with the film. He says, there's so much about it that is grand, so much that is brilliant and amusing and much that is grave and dangerous. 
On the one hand, it cuts right to the soft pulp, the kind of military mind that is lost from all sense of reality in a maze of technical talk. And it shows up this type of mentality for the foolish and frightening thing it is. On the other hand, I am troubled by the feeling which runs through the film of discredit and even contempt for our whole defense establishment, up to and even including the hypothetical commander-in-chief. When virtually everybody turns up stupid or insane, or what is worth psychopathic, I want to know what this picture proves. The ultimate touch of ghoulish humor is when we see the bomb actually going off. Somehow to me, it isn't funny. It is maleficent and sick. Well, that's interesting because it's it's not really a problem with the filmmaking as much as it is about taking or making comedy of this kind of very serious thing, which I imagine you probably wrote a, a, a very lovely review of Failsafe. You I know? Want, yeah, I should actually go look for his, his review of Failsafe just as a comparison. Yeah, because it feels like to me, he doesn't like the fact of the way the material is being treated. And I, I, I get that, but I also feel like it makes it, I think, a lasting movie. It's the reason why we're talking about Dr. Strangelove now and not Failsafe, because there is something overtly comical. I think Kubrick found this about war. What are we doing? We're just racing to our own extinction. Like we already are racing to our own extinction just by living. Right. And then everything else that we put on there from the climate crisis to, you know, just to living in cities, eating meat, whatever you want to do, however you want to view the world, we are racing towards some sort of extinction. And then to fast forward that by actually pressing a button uh, is is it is comical. It's because it's, it's the one thing that everybody wants is to live forever, I think, or to, uh, many people do. It's Yeah, and it's funny kind of how we've turned this sad, funny, every emotional thing all mixed up into one's ending into this touchstone that I think, depending on the mood of the country, kind of goes back and forth. You know, like in yeah. the 80s, Slim Pickens would kind of riff off his own persona as the guy who yahooed his way down to the destruction yeah. of the world in Chevy commercials. So there's a touch of, I think, there's a touch of Dr. Strangelove when he's trying to sell you Chevys in 1981. Slim Pickens here. I've been talking to some of these Chevy dealers and they said, Slim, you got to help us get rid of some of these Chevy trucks. These old boys have got more pickups and love trucks than a hound dog has fleas and they want to sell them now. That means they're really doing some dealing on new Chevy pickups, like this your Chevy Love. Every truck in stock. If you've been thinking trucks, there ain't no slim pickings around here. Your very last shot is wow. him waving the hat and doing the Yahoo, just like, by the way, end of the world. As I we love know that. It. By the way, I love that that commercial. I just want to makes me want to buy it. And those trucks look awesome, and <laughs> uh, but also just like, it's a really heartfelt commercial. Like, like just like, hey, come on down, to your Chevy dealer, please. Like, this is a real impassioned plea. Um, and you know, I wanted to play you. A song. Oh, I can't wait. Because a rap song? Not a rap song. Right. Not a rap song. Not a rap song. But a group that honors Slim Pickens uh, is a group that you might know, a little California band called The Offspring. Oh, yeah, I do. All right. They have a song called Slim Pickens Does the Right Thing and Rides the Bomb to Hell. Slim Pickens, well, he does the right thing and he rides the bomb to hell. Yeah, he rides the bomb to hell. He watch the pulls and quickens after every little sting. If you're gonna go to hell, drink it up, you might as well.
man alive. But you know what? Don't you feel like they also misinterpreted the end? I mean, it's like, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Ah, boy. Dexter Holland is apparently very smart. Isn't uh, he smart? Yeah, I guess he is. He's a neurosurgeon. He's a neurosurgeon. All right, there Neuros- we go. He's a neurosurgeon. Well, that wasn't the only band that was influenced by oh, uh, uh, by Dr. Strange. Um, you know, in our soon-to-be-released Beatles episode, uh, we talk about their really failed Beatles film, the television film, Magical Mystery Tour. And uh, they actually used some of the flying footage of the B-52s in this uh, because they needed to cover a sequence from the song Flyin'. And uh, that really pissed off uh, Kubrick because I guess it was like, it was this housed at uh, Shepperton Studios and they just go, oh, we'll use this. And he's like, no, 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 no. You can't use my, you can't use my footage for your shitty Beatles uh, thing. Um, so that was a, like a fun little uh, shaking hands yeah. with the Beatles. Can I say, by the way, mm-hmm. and I don't mean this to sound as much of a dislike as it is, I thought that the film is trying to make a joke of how bad the plane looked flying in the sky. You know, the kind of artificial plane oh, that that's looks funny. like an illustration. And then I learned about how much work Kubrick did and to try to make that look realistic. I mean, it that did. he sent up real pilots in real ships. They flew over tons, thousands of miles of footage to try to get the footage exactly right. He tried to line it up exactly where they'd be flying. But he we, tried to nail it, but that ship, the, the ship, the plane looks so phony. I know, and it's but you could tell it like he never was going to have that happen again because 2001 is the answer to that. I mean, but uh, but this, you know, when he was trying to get that footage, the crew shooting that aerial footage over Greenland accidentally filmed a secret U.S. military base and were questioned as Soviet spies. So go back to what we started off with. There's this disclaimer at the top of the film. <laughs> this is why, like, they were trying, they were really pushing the boundaries of what was. Uh, it's true, and know, also, if there's anything in this film that feels kind of prescient, it's this idea that. Maybe the only thing that's secondary to governments and the military is gigantic corporate branding. Because the oh. only other thing that comes in as a threat to this worldview and the way of life and the thing that must be protected at all costs is when poor Peter Sellers, when poor um, Captain Lionel Mandrake yeah. is trying to get to the president. He's trying to save right. the world. He's trying to save the world. And he tells this U.S. soldier that he has to shoot open a vending machine so mm-hmm. that he can get quarters to call the president to save the world. Yes. And this is what the guy says. That Coca-Cola machine, I want you to shoot the lock off it. There may be some change in there. That's private property. Colonel, can you possibly imagine what is going to happen to you, your frame, outlook, way of life and everything, when they learn that you have obstructed a telephone call to the President of the United States? Can you imagine? Shoot it off! Shoot with a gun! That's what the bullets are for, you twit! Okay. I'm going to get your money for you. But if you don't get the President of the United States on that phone, you know what's going to happen to you? What? You're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. I love that. (laughs) And by the way, you know, the government um, dismissed this whole film, you know, said that this accident in the nuclear war couldn't happen. But they did say they were most concerned at this scene where Captain Mandrake can't reach the Pentagon because he didn't have enough change for the pay phones. We need to figure out that. That was what they, that's what they thought was the most disturbing thing about. Um, you know, um, before we get into my inevitable question that I ask at the end of every episode, I wanted to pitch you one person instead of some Pickens. You know who also was up for that role or maybe was offered that role and said no? John Wayne. And I would have been interested to see John Wayne because John Wayne had played those kind of heavy, straight parts. And I think would have added the same kind of gravitas that George C. Scott has, you know. And of course, that iconic cowboy hat going down uh, would have been, yeah, yeah, it would have been even more interesting in a way. 
Yeah, I think John Wayne, well, he would have never yodeled riding the bomb. No. But maybe he would have even messed with the audience's emotions on a on a higher level, turned the screw, because it seems almost impossible to root against John Wayne, especially in Absolutely. a military film. So you'd be aware that the ship was trying to do the right thing. Well, I and think I you think would... That, that, that toggling back and forth we were talking about, I think that would have absolutely tied the audience in knots. Yeah. It would have broken off all of our switches. I totally agree, and I think you could have maybe have delivered some of the dramatic acting of that performance even a little bit with a little bit more gravitas. I mean, and that's not a bad thing to say. It's just, just I think, the truth. Um, uh, as I guess we come to this point, is there a Simpsons? There is. There's a lot of silent visual gags, but the clip I decided to pull is from an episode called Homer the Vigilante. Mm. This is from a fantasy that Homer has about destroying a bunch of hippies. So, a wedding, huh? No, we're forming a vigilante group. Come with me. Say it's a miniature version of the A-bomb. The government built it in the 50s to drop on beatniks. Radiant, cool, crazy nightmares and New Jersey nowhere. Put this in your pipe and smoke it. How now, brown bureaucrats? <laughs> Hey, see the sign? Yeah. Don't ride the bomb. (laughs) By the way, George C. Scott did keep acting for a really long time. And one project he was in that is, you know, I just want to bring up because I have to. He was in a 1996 made-for-TV miniseries about Titanic. And he played the captain. Oh, wow. Will you not try and save yourselves? There's a line often quoted. In the newspapers, God himself cannot sink this ship. She was appropriately named. The Titans dared to challenge the gods. And for their arrogance, they were cast down into hell. I wanted to play that just because I love the idea that once again he's a man at the helm of death, but now... He's the voice of conscience, you know, because I think if there's one note that really rings through here and it's something I've been thinking a lot about a lot is that what his character, who in a way I find to be the most pivotal him and Ripper in the film, what motivates both of them is just fear, you know, and that their reaction to fear is to cause destruction and chaos. And everything that that's that Scott's character ever says is a reaction to fear. He just can't believe that he can ever trust the Soviets you know, if mm. they have a bomb, he has to have two right, bombs. Right. They're coming for us no matter what. He's living in this just absolute paranoia. We need a mine shaft gap to the end. What if they figure out how to have better right, minds right. than us? And if he, if that character could just release his anxiety, this would not be happening at all. You know, and I feel like I just see that mindset a lot. Like, we all need guns to protect ourselves from the bad guys bursting into our yeah. house. They could burst at any moment. You never know when you need it. And this state of fear we live in is really, I think, so much the cause of all the problems. But it's it's it often comes at like an interesting, it's a personal protection, right? It's like very rarely do we have that same sort of energy or or group mentality towards larger scale issues of of extinction. It's like, yes, I want to, you know, there, you know, I want to have a gun. I want to do all this sort of stuff, but 
you know, but if you come to something like climate change, it's like, well, I don't know if that's, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of out there. We want to have everything like, it's almost like I want to have everything right in front of me to protect me in the now and the immediate. It's, 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 you know, both things are coming for us. It's, it's interesting because one thing is really like an improbable thing. And the other thing is more probable, but less, it's more heady. It's yeah. more heady. Like, well, I don't see that. I don't see it happening. But if I don't have a gun and, you know, someone comes after me, uh, you know, I, I need, you know, I, I need to have that on me. And you actually even have that exactly in this film, too. You know, we're not even talking, I think, about the climate crisis in 1964. But you have a man in that war room say, if these bombs go off, we're not going to be able to live on this earth for over 100 years. We're right. going to destroy everything. And you have George C. Scott being like, ah, eh, two weeks. Right, like, yeah. Based on no science, everything's going to be fine. And we're still having that conversation, too. It's crazy. Now, Amy, this movie is currently ranked at number 39 on the AFI list. Uh, it's up 13 points from its 26th position. Um We've talked about a lot in the past, maybe one film from one director to be fair and balanced and, and really representative of so many different things. We've, uh, but we've talked about a lot of Kubrick. I've really enjoyed many of them that we've watched. I think we both agreed that Clockwork probably doesn't need to be on the list. Um, and probably not Spartacus either. Yeah, Spartacus yeah. can go off. I definitely believe that 2001... Spartacus can go off, sorry. <laughs> I definitely believe that uh, 2001 is one of the most influential films still. Yeah. Uh, I kind of hold that film up there with Citizen Kane, Safar, and R. Just in looking at what we've talked about and, and the advancement of film. Uh, where do you fall on this film? I would be happy with a list that only had... Strange Love and 2001 on it. And mm -hmm. I could probably even live with a list that only had 2001. Right. I like Strange Love. Right. You know, I like it a lot. I, I would love to see what other satires we have that also get to the heart of the matter. Mm -hmm. You know, probably nothing else does it as well as Strange Love. Although I'd be In the loop people wanted by to watch. Our, Armando Nucci, right? Uh, yeah. Who created Veep is, a, is an interesting film. I don't think it's as good as this. Yeah. Um, but I think it also tackles like American politics from a different perspective. Uh, I wonder if the George Clooney failsafe is. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously Veep deals with, you know, American government, but this is a very different thing. It it feels very different than anything else we've talked about on this on this show. It's it's a war story, but told in a very different way. It's about humanity. Uh, I think the fact that it holds up so well and it's a comedy and holds up so well. Um, it also is our only Peter Sellers so far on the list. Yeah. And there's something about that. Like right now I'm leaning towards it absolutely being on the list. I, I think that this movie is, uh, is really important. I think above 50 feels right to me. I would maybe put it up above uh, 39, but we haven't really kind of reconnoited our list yet, which we will do and probably not do a full episode on. We'll probably just put that up on the website and you can kind of look at it. We can talk about it. But uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it belongs above 50, definitely belongs on this list. And um, I almost like the yin and yang of 2001 yeah. and Strange Love as like, these set pieces, like these bookends. They feel like films talking to each other yeah, you know, and not, not on the same frequency even. Yeah. Like they're, I like them as the range of what Kubrick can do, even if they're back to back in his filmography. Yeah, I do too. And um, I think actually, you know, I give him, I give Kubrick a lot of uh, grief for, I think being a little bit weak with his actors in particular, in the mm -hmm. way that James Earl Jones himself said that he's not interested in you as a person. But I think this film is so well cast that it works. Right. And I think this is I'm what sure I'm sure you feel the same way about James Cameron, right? <laughs> 
I think that um, I think that Kubrick. You know, this is one of the only films where his actors got a nomination, where Sellers right. got a nomination. I think he lets his actors shine in a way they don't shine, even in 2001. I agree. Well, I mean, 2001 is almost about taking away the humanity. Like, you know, exactly. you're really, it's you're watching machines, you know, and this is all about humanity. I don't know. Yeah, I really, I really like this. I can't see a list with this not on it. You're and- right. If we had these two, I think we would get Kubrick. Yes, I think so too. I think it really is representative of Kubrick, and and they're very vastly different stylistically, mm-hmm. tonally. Um, it's it's fantastic. It's I I really like this film a lot, a lot, a lot. And I think I had a a, a greater appreciation for it after watching whatever seventy six other films uh, that we've talked about. I just think it 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 feels stronger. It's like these movies that not go down easy, but you. You immediately go, oh yeah, that that belongs. It's not a not a slog. It just feels like, yes. I mean, not that any of these films feel like slogs, but it just but immediately it's under two hours. What it is, and it immediately kind of pulls you in. And I like that idea of like a film that like you're like, oh, I'm in. I'm I'm right here. You know, I don't have to like reset my mind to anything. I'm just it just immediately transports you. Yeah. Well, then there we go. I think we saw we have solved the Kubrick conundrum. All right, two for Kubes. Um, <laughs> next week we're going back to Chaplin for Gold Rush. Yeah, the 1925 version of Gold Rush. We get some Chaplin on again. That'll be nice. It's been a minute since we've done something silent. And, you know, Chaplin himself, a great spoofer of politicians. Yes, uh, indeed. Is Great Dictator on this list? It is not on this list. So interesting. Um, But I'm curious to see, because we've talked about Chaplin in the past, I was wondering maybe our call to action, our call to you this week would be, are there any other satires that you would like to see on this list. A, a movie that kind of tackles, you know, whether uh, tackles America, or American politics in a way that uh, that Cooper kind of does in, in this film. So give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824 with your recommendation of a film that uh, satirizes America in a really interesting way. And just a reminder that Amy and I will be doing our live show in Los Angeles at the Alamo Draft House on January 20th. Please come out and see us. And our subject this month, Amy, you want to tell them? Yeah. I mean, January 20th is America's Historical Inauguration Day. Yes. So we're going to be talking about presidents in movies. I'm very excited about that. So go to the Alamo Draft House website or get the app. You can buy tickets uh, for that right now. And we will see you next week for Gold Rush. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.